The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Welcome back to The Hearing. I'm Kevin Poulter, and for today's episode, I travelled to ITV's London offices to speak with the broadcaster's Director of Legal Affairs, Barry Matthews. What Barry actually does at ITV is quite complicated, so I'll leave him to explain more. Barry, by admission, came from modest beginnings in Cambridge, but with the support of his parents and an inspirational teacher, his success in law has not only given him his own career, but also the opportunity to inspire and support others. The Social Mobility Business Partnership, which he founded, now supports over 300 students a year, and he's brought in some high-powered friends to help him out. Sadly, we didn't have time to discuss Barry's UK garage DJ sets, or how hard a negotiator Simon Cowell really is, so we'll leave both of those things to your own imagination. The Hearing Barry, thank you very much for inviting us down to ITV, uh, to your offices in Grazing Road. Um, first of all, very impressive, uh, the building, and a lovely office as well, I should add. Uh, so just to explain to the people who can't see us, uh, we're in the Old Times building. We are, yeah. So this building um, is a Norman Foster building, and it's all built around a very big central atrium where the printing presses used to be. So um, wonderful in the winter, not so much in the summer when the air conditioning packs up. But um, <laughs> yeah. lots of There's natural light around. I can yeah, see exactly. that's not that's not good for the uh, sun. But um, uh, I, I'll introduce you now uh, officially, uh, Director of Legal Affairs and Third Party Sales. Now, first question is, what does that mean? What does that mean? Um, so I am a divisional GC twice over. I look after our commercial division. Um, I also look after our direct consumer division. Two legal teams reporting into me through those divisional um, responsibilities. I also look after advertising content compliance. Um, the third party sales piece relates to um, a number of people reporting to me who run our sales agency relationships with other broadcasters. We sell inventory on their behalf. Right. We also exchange media space with other media owners, so radio for TV, for okay. example, called Contra. Um, and we also look after the auditing of our share of broadcast deals. So that's my remit um, in terms of teams, and then I also look yeah. after a lot of the operational side of how our legal departments work beyond those which report into me. Well, that, that in itself sounds like a day's work, uh, just, just explaining what it is. Um, and you're the first time we've spoken on the series to uh, in-house counsel, to GC, so uh, thank you. Uh, and, and really want to know a little bit more about uh, the, the, sort of the practical side of the job. You've talked about the, sort of the remit, but on a day-to-day -day basis, what does your day look like? Day-to-day um, -day is a mixture, um, so I have five heads of reporting into me um, and generally speaking my role now is to give kind of wise counsel on issues of risk, so I mean really my role is risk management, mm. so less of the kind of doing, more of the kind of oversight and assessment of risk, um, whilst I do keep um, some responsibilities in terms of our relationships with Ofcom in respect of a behavioural remedy we inherited mm. on merger. Um, beyond that, um, I'm looking at the operational side of things, so looking at how we innovate in terms mm. of delivery of legal services, so that can range from doing periodic um, operational reviews, looking at whether or not we've got the most efficient deployment of staffing across our various teams, whether or not um, the way in which we interact with a business is efficient, um, insofar as you know, we're always looking to see where we can commoditize 
what we do and then devolve responsibility into the business and train them mm-hmm. into how they can actually become quasi lawyers in terms of their drafting. So there's a mixture of creating contract drafting tools right through to education seminars to enable them to red flag issues early. Because in effect, most legal teams, will, if you speak to any more, mm. cost pressures are always an issue. Yeah, but is this the job description that you signed up for? Um, uh, how many years ago was it? It was um, just about 15 years ago I came in. Um, I started out at Granada Television right. as a junior solicitor. Um, is that down here? It was actually, yeah. Oh, right. So I worked at Hogan Lovell's, or Lovell, the white Durham it was, was then, mm. um, for five years, trained there, um, qualified into what was called the trade law team, but specialised in sports and media. So okay. Granada TV was one of my clients. I was asked to come over and do a notice period for head of legal um, role. Mm. Did that, went back for a bit, and then funnily enough came back. Wow. Um, Stepped through the doors on day one, and my first job was to negotiate the recording contract for the Cheeky Girls' first album single. <laughs> That's a fantastic name. You know, you're not listed on there, are you? No, no, unfortunately not. I've got to check my copy at home. I, um, I, I did have a badge that had Cheeky Boy number one on it as I um, attended the record launch of wow. the um, Cheeky Girls and their mother, Margit. And their stepfather Ray, who was a chippy from Peckham. Is that right? Yeah, and it was a great night. Absolutely great. I, night. I can believe it. Yeah, it's um, chatting about Romania pre post Ceausescu with the cheeky girls and exchanging tips on snooker halls in South East London with Ray. <laughs> what more could you want from an evening? Well, it's, it's not every lawyer's uh, <laughs> wet dream, shall I say, but, um, but, but, everyone, but everyone's got their own quirks. Um, <laughs> that, that's incredible. So, so the, uh, sort of the breadth of experience that you've got from cheeky girls right the way through to everything you've just been talking about is incredibly broad. How much, uh, this, this might sound like a rude question, it's not intended that way, sure. but how much of your job now do you think is in, in speech marks as a lawyer? Um, it's a mixed bag. I mean, I think, you know, once, you know, when there's major pieces of legislation that come through which affect us corporately, so, you know, in the recent past, be it the Bribery Act, be it Modern Slavery, mm. and now, obviously, the, the dreaded acronym of GDPR. Yes. That's when you go into full lawyer mode because there's right. an analysis of that, that legislation and working how best we can comply and ensure the business can easily navigate their way around through that piece of legislation mm. and the team's getting consistency in terms of delivery advice. So that's when you kind of dip into lawyer mode. But then in terms of the operational management side of things, that's kind of really kind of what my role is now mm. um, to, to ensure that we are delivering legal services in the most effective way and we're making best use of the people we've got, career management. I look after um, our learning development programs. Mm. I look after... Um, our relationships and our panel law firms to because we see it as legal is not just in-house panel firm mm. it's a brand and it's a brand in the eyes of the client base that we work with and so there needs to be yeah. a seamless link between the two mm. so i'm always working on innovations to ensure that there's a closer knitting of those two you know, sets of people mm. to ensure that it's a singular brand on which the client base see because ultimately when something goes wrong and it's down to poor legal advice Nobody really discerns whether it was the in-house team or the external team. It's the legal team in yeah. the broadest sense. When you talk about that client, that internal client, um, on a day-to-day basis, who are we talking about? So, I mean, in terms of, for me personally, we have a managing director of commercial. We have a managing director of um, direct consumer. It's also our strategy director. Um, we'll across the piece in the broadest sense. We have a director of television. Mm-hmm. So, the leaders of the divisions that form ITV as a whole and then those individuals which fall beneath them. I mean, what we've made it very um, 
key to how we organise our teams is that we're not organising the paramedical structure in terms of relationships. I think lots of organisations make the mistake of ensuring that the relationships at the top level are very close. Mm. But the further you get down the hierarchical chain, there isn't that closeness. And what then happens is things get missed. Mm. So we're very keen, you know, in terms of our, our solicitor apprentice, for example, who, we, um, who started um, three years ago, Holly, she will have her set of catch-ups with her peer group within the business. And that, go, that navigates all the way up through our paralegals, through our newly qualifieds, right through to our heads of legals and our directors of legal. So in a sense, there's a constant dialogue and ensuring that we're, we're hearing things early so we can prevent rather than cure. Mm. So we're not, we're not staffed up to firefight. So you've mentioned a lot of job titles there already. How yeah, many sure. people are we talking about? In so, terms of the, the ITV legal team. So the ITV legal team is, comes under a broader umbrella called, called GIL, which is Governance Information and Legal. Okay. So we've, you know, within there you have um, health and safety, you have insurance mm. slash risk, you have company secretariat, you have legal in the, in the kind of truest sense, you have um, business affairs, which is kind of particular to the TV industry, mm. um, where the lawyers within that, that function are both commercial and legal because yeah. they have the ability to negotiate price as well as negotiate the arrangements. Mm. Um, and then we've got a whole team of rights managers in terms of managing the distribution of rights in and rights out, which then feeds into the sales teams who are managing those rights. And then beyond that, you've got a smattering of compliance um, advisors looking at things from privacy, defamation, mm. to compliance with the broadcasting code. So, so, so in, the, in, the, in the broadest legal compliance risk sense, how many, um, roughly, how many? There's between three and 400 people in that really? constituency. Wow. But it's a broad, broad church in terms of, you know, in terms of traditionally in a bank, you'll have legal and compliance. Yeah. Effectively, we bring those They'll two come things together. together with some ancillary services that sit, sit around that. And, and we're going to come back to the apprentice that you mentioned earlier um, a little bit later. But back to what you were just saying about the panel firms. You have a huge responsibility for managing that side of the relationship as well. How does that relationship work? Because I know you've got quite a different approach or style perhaps than what might be considered a traditional uh, panel arrangement. Sure. How, how does that work? Um, well, I think you know we we took a long hard look at um, our, the way in which we interacted with our in-house um, sort of panel, panel firms um, some years back. And one of the first things when Andrew Garrow came to post his group um, general counsel was to analyse how we were um, engaging in terms from a fee perspective. So mm. we were the first one of the first in the, in the UK to kind of move to a fixed fee model. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of like one of the key cornerstones. How long ago was that? That's going back to 2008, 2009. Okay, wow. So, so that's the way in which we've traded years. with those um, panel firms since then. Um, but what we wanted to do as well was, you know, that wasn't a question of beating the, the panel firms up on price. It was simply getting cost certainty. Because the mm. one thing we don't have is the ability to overspend on our budgets. Yep. We have a fixed budget. We won't, you know, we can't effectively write a blank check at the start of the year mm. for legal services that we may need during that year. Mm. So price, um, kind of going to the fixed price model was all about ensuring that we had certainty of the price we were paying for services, but also made us better clients. Yeah. Because ultimately, at the start of a transaction, you really start to really think about who does what mm. and the assumptions around the advice you require. And then that then breeds a better kind of um, approach to project management. So rather than launching into a project, um, but whether it be an M&A transaction or a large piece of commercial advice, not thinking about who's best placed to provide the various constituent parts mm. of that, that, that project and working out the assumptions around what you expect from the panel firm. So... That, I think, in a sense, is, makes the whole thing more efficient for both sides in the transaction. Yeah, yeah. And, and I suppose 
working on that base as well you, there's an element of building up the trust in that relationship yeah, and, and you having to you can't you can't be responsible for everything that's going on and so in a micromanagement style but you have to trust the people that you're working with both internally but also those panel firms and the the people who are on the ground doing the doing the day-to-day work no absolutely and i think that then lends itself to thinking differently about how you engage your firm so i spent a lot of time with andrew working up new ways of getting greater stickiness between the panel firm and the ITV in-house legal team. So one example of that was um, a learning development programme we devised that looked at segmenting our legal teams from those who are zero to two, from two to senior heads of legal, and then the constituent directorship, mm. and building out a programme where it's co-authored, co-delivered, and co-recipient. So there's obviously a vested interest in both in-house and the panel yeah. firms developing their lawyers. Yeah. We have a huge amount of access to business acumen, Mm. And the law in context, equally the resources at the disposal of a law firm in terms of black letter law, yeah. far blows apart what we can ever offer our lawyers internally. So actually what we did is bring those two worlds together and in a sense made it a far more engaging programme and mm. learning development. But then also because we'd segmented the, um, the legal teams in that way, those peer relationships began to grow um, from day one. So, for example, our zero to two scheme is all around about core skills, but core right. skills from a legal technical skills perspective and business acumen. Mm-hmm. So understanding the means of delivery of television and the DSATs and the DCABs and the like of this world, right through to understanding, you know, when the annual report comes out, you know, actually dissecting that. So lots of people sat around and mm-hmm. nodded their head sagely about the numbers being presented to them. But if you really interrogated whether they understood them, there was, you know, varying degrees of um, understanding. Uh, yeah. So those sorts of things are brought in, but bringing in the lawyers at the same level of qualification from the panel firms kind of cements that relationship. And and then then you move on to the next phase, and we say, well, actually, the technical skills required for the two to seniors were probably more catered for in the traditional kind of CPD arrangements Mm. which law firms are offering. So we could actually identify a smorgasbord of opportunities within what their existing offer and cherry-pick in terms of people going on those. But the, the key part of that scheme is about more about a management consultancy spin called the Peer Partnership Programme I developed. And that's with looking at um, how can we better refine our delivery of legal services in the context of the divisions we work, and equally how can the law firms think about they can deliver client services better. To coin a phrase, is ITV the hub uh, with these sort of, uh, arms going off it to, to each of the panel firms? Or is there a connection between the panel firms as well? Do they come together to, to share that knowledge? Yeah, so or, another, or another innovation is around um, a legal advisors day. So it's when we invited in the, the law firms and said, you know, you, we are a team in the broadest possible sense. It's mm-hmm. so that hub and spoke model, but actually you guys can come in and listen to our, our, the leaders of the divisions that we support talking very candidly about reflecting on the previous 12 months and thinking about the next 12 months in terms of delivery strategy. So you can understand, so you're not just you know, siloed into the matters that you're brought into mm. assistance with, you're actually getting a broader picture. So when you're um, required to come in and, and act as a kind of an extension to the, the in-house legal team, you understand the starting point of where we're trying to get to as a business, mm. which then enables you to kind of provide the insight and the context of what we need from a strategic point of view, rather than simply looking at what we've asked you to do. Mm. So you know, doing those sorts of things and making sure that there is that kind of collaboration, yeah. understanding where a broadest, you know, a team in the broadest possible sense. And is it at that point you bring out the big red buzzer to vote off the panel firms that aren't forming? No, no, no. I mean, I think, you know, we've, we've had a... Um, 
good success rate of a low amount of churn from our panel on the basis that you say when you move into a fixed fee model it's about trust yeah. you build up that trust you're always you know we, re- we review our panel on a three-year cycle and it's looking to see given you know, obviously the strategy changes over a period of time mm-hmm. whether we've got the relevant skill sets available within those firms yeah. and enough competitive tension in terms of you know obviously there is still a market you mm-hmm. know I think it's one of the things that we found in our first turn when we reduced the panel size was that one particular organisation was querying why they were receiving less money than they did when there was 48 firms mm. being instructed by ITV. And as we reminded them, it's still a market. It, it, you yes. still need to be yeah. visible. And competitive in that sense yeah. and, 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 and acting reasonably. Um, uh, I'm just, one more question just around the job. As a broadcaster, as ITV, Obviously, we've talked about legal, we've talked about compliance, we've talked about advertising as well, and and, and your responsibilities there. As well as those considerations, uh, do you also have any sort of ethical, moral uh, issues to deal with as well? I'm thinking like we're seeing more and more uh, people on reality TV. And at what stage you sat at home watching the TV thinking somebody needs to step in now or we've got a responsibility to the audience as well about what we show, how we show it. Sure. I mean, Do you, I, can you enjoy TV anymore? Yeah, no, I absolutely adore TV. I mean, I'm a, you know, we're not one of these middle class families that doesn't have a television. Right? So that's our primary form of entertainment. <laughs> Um, I think, you know, TV is interesting for an outsider because it wouldn't, on the face of it, appear to be a, an industry which is highly regulated, but it's one of the most highly regulated industries in the UK. Yeah. Um, in terms of what we can put on the screen as it um, appears in the broadcasting code for programmes, right through to what we can um, put up in terms of the adverts that appear within the programmes. Mm. And then for ITV, uh, given that um, we merged, we formed um, ITV, the merger of Granada and Carlton, we have a behavioural remedy which um, regulates the way in which we trade with our customers. Mm-hmm. So for in terms of you know the, the ethical um, aspects of, of television, we're highly regulated, so there are great mm-hmm. clear tram lines in which to, so, which to work. But we are you know very conscious of the fact that we are part of the fabric of British society and we do have a responsibility to reflect the society in which we live and also use that as a, a force for good. Mm-hmm. So for example, you know, something which is touched in and the, um, the commercial area, which is our partnership with the Daily Mail and Ineos, um, in terms of celebrating the fact that there's a wonderful headmistress up in Scotland, decided mm. one day, well, let's just get these kids to, to run a mile around the playground. Yeah. And this is an easy transferable model which we can take to other primary schools right. to encourage kids to be more active. And we've done that in partnership with a commercial entity such as Ineos and used the power of commercial television and airtime that we've yeah. sold and co-partnered and co-funded to amplify that message. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's... there's it's no longer just what you see on the box. No, it's a it's far everything. more intricate um, set of, you know, and actually, in, you know, in terms of the level of support I've got, um, in terms of setting up the social mobility business partnership, ITB is very centric in terms of ethics and values, mm. I think, and, and hopefully we've seen to be kind of leaders in that field especially in relation to social mobility and probably beyond that. Almost a seamless link right through <laughs> to what the next on my list. It's like uh, a is it? but it's, it, I'm, I'm sure you're reading ahead. Um, but, but you mentioned social mobility. This is clearly uh, one of your I've personal no passions. Oh, well, you're doing a very good, <laughs> a very good uh, impression of somebody who is. Uh, where did that come from? Where did this desire to, to shake up social mobility in the law initially, but now on a much more broad scale? Um, I mean, I think it's, it's two things, I guess. One, it was me. Um, so when I was 17, 
I sat in front of my careers advisor and um, suggested that I wanted to go to university mm. and study law. The reaction was people from your council estate don't go to university and law and started laughing at me, which is a very inspiring chat. Um, and it sounds, it sadly sounds very familiar, but um, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> I'm, really, not, I'm not here to get to go. Unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately <laughs> I haven't been so able to track him down. But, um, but um, secondly, I... When I first arrived in London, um, when I was a trainee at Lovells, I volunteered at an HIV charity called Body and Soul, mm. um, working with teenagers. So we kind of take them at 12 and then they'd, they'd launch off into the world at the age of 18, 19. And one of the most crucifying things that was is that on numerous occasions having chats with the, the kids who were coming up to being 18, 19 and thinking about what next, um, a number of them who were super bright weren't considering law as a possibility. And that yeah. broke my heart because I said, well, why don't you think that law's a possibility? That's what I do mm. for a living. Mm. Why is it a possibility for you? So, well, people like me don't become lawyers. I said, well, I don't come from, I wouldn't ever profess to say that my situation was you know, exactly the same as yours, but I came from a very similar background and mm. it is possible. It's hard. There's no denying that, but it is possible. But mm. that kind of lens of aspiration was more born out of fear than anything yeah. else and a lack of familiarity. So a combination of knowing what it feels like to come through and also seeing X number of years on, then actually those kind of psychological barriers still existed, kind of inspired me to say, well, look, let's try and do something about this. Because actually the law firms had led the way. Mm. Prime, you know, the, um, what David Morder did at a and actually corralling people to think differently about work experience was bloody brilliant. Um, but unfortunately, not every organisation has the force of an HR department or a CSR department That's right. to manage that. So w- I wanted to do something here at ITV. Um, it quickly became apparent that to justify the amount of resource required to create a work experience program, which is focused on law in the context of business, given the number of people who represented the overall constituency, mm. was never going to be able to fly because ultimately it was hard for that team within, no matter how many drinks I bought them, <laughs> um, to justify the resource versus how many other people they couldn't have assist in terms of yes. CSR projects. So back in 2014, managed to convince a number of firms and their respective clients to come together and said, look, we can subdivide responsibility. Mm. This all becomes more manageable. So we had Yahoo, Microsoft, Viacom, ourselves, join together with the support of their um, individual panel law firms, for example, Slaughter's mm. supported us. Um, and, the f- and the fifth day of that experience was um, provided by Harlequins. I used to play rugby a long time ago, pre-Volvos and kids. Knitwear I'm looking at the nose of the ears now, and yeah. I, no obvious... No, uh, no, no, I used to wear a little head guard. It's very, <laughs> very dainty. Um, then I, mine also only kept went out when I was 22, so I kind of saved, saved these radio, face of radio looks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Fortuitous is one of the guys I used to play rugby with is now the CEO of Harlequins. And one of the things we both... You know, always reflect on is actually the stuff that we learn um, back then around psych- the psychology of resilience and goal achievement was probably more valuable to us in our careers than it ever was in terms of our rugby. Sport, yeah. And so, worked with those guys to take the stuff that was being delivered to the first team and re- repurposed it so it was accessible to 17 year olds and more importantly, 17 year olds who didn't like sport because sport can be a very negative thing in people's lives. Mm. Um, as it is for my wife, who absolutely hates it, so you <laughs> regularly wonder why we got together in the first place. Um, but it's all good, it's all good, it's the human. It's good to spend time apart. Exactly, that's, yeah, that's it's, it it's good to be an individual. <laughs> it's it's um, and so we, we, yeah, it worked, we kind of stitched those experiences together, it was showcasing more in the context of business, through the medium of business games, fifth day at Harlequin's learning about resilience and goal achievement, mm. and that was 20 kids in 2014, so I should say students. Um, year 12 
Uh, but I thought, well, this actually works. This is a franchise model. This is something yeah. you can effectively think about as, you know, like a product. Yes. In the same way as you know, delivering legal advice to these guys, how do we commoditize? How do we make things more efficient? Mm. Let's apply the same principles mm. to charitable work. Why shouldn't you? And yep. So we did that. We replicated it in Manchester the following year, bringing on board Adidas, Man City, Man United, Ed Brown, a digital retailer. Um, same model, four businesses, Resilience Day. And then at that point, it was just a, a back-end coaching platform run through LinkedIn, which is very for a very um, ad hoc email address was monitored, and we found somebody to help the kids with yeah. queries that off the scheme. You fast forward to last year, we've got up to 300 places, wow. seven towns and cities, no formal budget, no paid for staff, <laughs> just a number of my lawyers doing things on a it's good for you, it's good for your development basis. Um, but you've mentioned buying the beers uh, yeah. or getting the drinks in for these people to convince them this is a good thing. But when it gets to Manchester United, even Yahoo, whatever, how much arm twisting was involved? Is that how it works? Or was it no, just no, no, finding think, people like you with that motivation? Yeah, I think it's, you know, there is huge amounts of latent goodwill out in the UK in corporate Britain, but there's lots of people trying to work out how. Mm. And so what we you made that easy. Yeah, it's just a, it's a we all the, the pictures. There's days worth of content and the price of some sandwiches yeah. and chip in for the kids' travel. Yeah, and beyond that, actually, we'll do the legwork. So this year it, it it grew up. We finally got some proper funding to enable me to employ a scheme director and administrator, build out a coaching platform which is bespoke to us, which enables us to. You know, um, ensure that the students are getting quality, consistent advice. Mm. Um, it builds a model whereby coaches can be put into contact with students within a, within a um, safeguarding environment within a portal, mm. answer their question, questions dipping in and out. Um, and equally, we've commoditized how the Resilience Day is run, so it's yep. a, in our set of materials which we can train people up in delivering. The induction days are supported by the SRA, VAR Standards Board, Silex, the ICAW, the ACCA, first time that any of the, all of those guys have ever worked together. Mm. Because actually, you know, one of the things we saw through the years of being the LSMP was that a number of students were... Sorry, the, sorry, the Legal Social Mobility Partnership. Thank you very much. So it morphed this year into the Social Mobility Business Partnership. And the reason being is that we took, given that we were going to kind of move forward to becoming a charity, we thought, well, this is a time to reflect on what's worked and whether or not this is the right model. Right. And reflecting what students said, um, halfway through most weeks, I said, well, a number of my friends haven't applied for this, but they're kicking themselves. Mm -hmm. They never realised that you guys did this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah but also, I, I guess, one of the problems is that you, you could be easily overwhelmed by applications and, and, and people to help. Is that, is that, is that a concern? Um, we've got to the stage now. Where we, our clusters are you know, up to 30 students. So... In terms of, we, we don't really have an issue with finding partners now because we're a well-trodden path, the model. Mm. What we're, we're struggling with now, whilst we've got a reserve of money to pay for additional student travel, it's right. project management um, resource. So if there's anybody out there <laughs> who wants to con me some people who want to have um, some degree of social purpose on a rolling basis on maybe six months or 12 months. And is there a beer um, involved in this as well? There is. So, okay, I'll fine. quite happily buy a spritzer or a lager shandy tops. <laughs> 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 I'm that kind of man. I'm very generous. But um, yeah, I think, you know, this, I mean, the, the, the recognition that we got from Justine Greening in the sense that we were asked to assist with, the, with, her, um, with her social mobility pledge tells you that we're onto something good here. 
And it's great that law's been the driving force behind this. It's superb. And, and it's superb the support you've had from ITV because I, I guess the, the two are inseparable. You and ITV together working. Uh, is, yeah, no, no, it's, been, it's been incredible. Yeah, yeah, big credit to Andrew Garrell to give me the, the mm. license to do this. Absolutely. And, and is, it, is it through that that really this development, we're coming back to it now, the, uh, the apprenticeship, uh, I think the trailblazer apprenticeship happened? Yeah, I mean, I think... I've been asked this before and it wasn't the driving force behind creating the apprenticeship. I think the driving force behind creating the apprenticeship was that I think that model lends itself so much to in-house because mm-hmm. effectively you're, you're getting somebody for six years through during the, the passage of learning and um, acquiring their professional qualifications. Each day they're learning about the business. At the point of qualification, I mean, Holly will come through this organisation with the, the, the the, the biggest purview that anyone would have yeah. a legal perspective she will work in every division of ITV in those legal teams including the group legal function which oversees our M&A litigation so she will come out of that experience on day one mm-hmm. as a newly qualified completely conversant with ITV's business model on a 360 basis so what's not to like about that and well I well, I'll tell you as an employment lawyer what's not to like is I hope she's locked into a 20 year non-compete um, <laughs> because, because she takes that somewhere else there's a lot of knowledge that you yes. could potentially lose and walk out the door and this is not, this is not advice for Holly I should say no, no, uh, I hope she's not listening yeah. uh, but, but this is but as much as the investment comes through it because I think it's a 7 year programme that, that yeah, 6 years in 6 years sorry um, that's a huge investment and, and of course I'm sure she's going to be very grateful but at the same time, sure. I mean, we're not doing that with goodness of our heart. I, mean, I think this to me makes absolute commercial sense for ITB because you get a fu- you get somebody you can deploy into any of those divisions or qualification. Yeah. Given the, the given the economics of how we run legal teams, there's always going to be a need for newly qualified lawyers cycling through the process mm. in terms of different teams. So there will always be a need for newly qualified on a regular basis mm. coming into the, the the wider team. It makes absolute sense for us, and that's why we you know we pushed to be the first. Um, in the UK to do it mm. and working with Silex Law School and City um, just across the road there. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, for, for Holly and for, for, for the, the people you've been working with, which I'm guessing now are probably in the thousands that have come through the uh, social mobility, and uh, they, what is it, is there something which is missing in their lives that make them feel uh, whatever stage that they they can't achieve this, this is not an opportunity for them, it's not something that they can yeah. follow. I mean, just I mean, pointing to Holly, I mean, I think Holly, again, we weren't looking for to recruit somebody from a low-income background. It just happens that, I mean, Holly won't mind me sharing this with you, um, that she did come, or does did come from a low-income background. But, um, but she came through because she really wanted it. And actually, mm. one of the things that drove her towards an apprenticeship was some of the misinformation she'd got about the cost of university. Yeah. Which was heartbreaking because, yeah. you know, that's one of the things we try and um, un- unpick um, during the SMBP. Mm. Martin Lewis is one of our patrons. Um, but in terms of what, what are the students that we meet missing, they're not missing ability. They've definitely got ability. All these students are super bright. What they're missing is the social capital you get growing up in a middle class family. Now, one of the things I said when we set this up, this is not to demonise kids who go to private and public school because you don't replace one prejudice with another. Yeah. Um, this is about accepting that you know your success is dependent probably on two things. It's the academic experiences you have within the schools and the institutions you go to. But conversely, it's your social capital and the confidence born out of that social capital. Mm. And we as employers can affect that second half. I mean, you can affect the first half um, in terms of offering tutoring, I've known Sorcha may do a wonderful project up called the Key Project with um, the Central Foundation School for Boys up in North London. 
But through work experience, you give the students the ability to see that actually organisations like ITV will welcome you if you're bright and you're willing to work hard. I think one of the unintended consequences of the structure of the scheme, because it was born out of a, a need to subdivide responsibility to make it possible, um, was that actually if you go to four different organisations in a week, it's very hard to say that they're the exception rather than the rule. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're getting a, you know, you're actually sparking some inspiration. So our whole mm. kind of strap line is inspire skill coach. So the inspiration is around seeing those organisations and familiarising them with that and see it's not impossible to get there. The skill side is ensuring the days are focused on business games. They walk away with anecdotes they can use in uh, interviews. Yes. So when they're asked the, the question about, talk to me about time when you've worked well as a team or solved a problem or been a leader, they've got something to say and yes. it's associated with a super great brand name. Absolutely. And then um, the coach is actually that aftercare to say that the show and tell is great, the brand name's great, the anecdotes are great, but actually the turnkey will be that continual ability to come and touch base mm. with somebody in the know, which I can now give my kids and my mum and dad can give me, Yes. through something which is scalable like a coaching platform. So for you personally, way back when, uh, on the council estate in Cambridge, uh, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Just, just kicked out of the uh, <laughs> careers officer's uh, uh, office. Um, what was that that social capital, what was that drive for you? Where did that come from? I mean, in terms of, you know, law in particular, beyond actually having a job that wanted to give me some financial certainty, I was very fortunate enough to have a wonderful headmistress when I was at primary school, um, a lady called Jean Foot, um, and she was very fearsome. She was um, headmistress by day um, and also um, magistrate by night slash day. Right. Uh, and she was probably my, you know, one of, the, one of the biggest role models in my life beyond my own parents. And she instilled, you know, in me an understanding that I could achieve that. Mm. And that was something that, you know, would, would be possible. Um, and she was someone I, I really admired. Mm. And I, I actually saw a video that you've uh, produced, I think for the uh, first hundred years yes. um, uh, campaign. And uh, in that she mentions uh, that uh, there were three things that you could have got on to do. Um, and I think this is correct. Uh, was it actor, journalist, or lawyer? Yes. Um, I suppose I did you her on two counts. Did you make did the right decision? Is that, 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 <laughs> that, that, that's the question. People have multiple careers, don't they? Now, um, yes, I think I did. I mean, I enjoy. I love my job. And, you know, I think in terms of the the breadth of what we do here at ITV and the breadth of role that I now have means that no day is the same. It sounds very cliche. Yeah, it's very very true. And actually, it's about working with people, inspiring people, and getting the best from them, mm. and developing relationships. And I think, you know, what we've made a really good play of is ensuring that the way in which we organise our teams, we've developed, we've developed a model here in terms of how we organise teams to ensure greater stickiness between our internal clients and in-house team. The stickiness that we create mm. with our panel firms is all born out of how you create, you know, um, models of communication, models of learning development, all about creating greater stickiness and greater relationships. And that's what life's about. It's mm. what business is about. It's about what our personal lives are about. It's bringing the humanity into what is actually, you know, you spend a lot of time in these, these class yeah. buildings. Yeah. And actually about enjoying that through ensuring that you're, you're actually not remotely working mm. and producing documentation and advice. You're actually solving problems and helping people. Mm. You know, not, not in the laudable sense of helping people, in the, you know, in terms of what we've done as SMBP, but actually the same satisfaction you get yeah. from actually solving problems and making making those connections. Asking, asking as a partner in private practice who's very happily settled, um, 
the, the, the fear that I think a lot of people have about going in-house is that there's no way back. There's no way out of it. I, <laughs> do, you feel, do you feel that you're now on this groove that, that's difficult to move away from, certainly to go back into private practice, but in terms of future options for you? Are you going to be uh, um, you're the ITV through and through now? If we cut you open, it's uh, ITV. Um, I love my job. I love this organisation. I wouldn't have stayed here as long as I have done. Um, I think I don't commit you. This no, is not, no, 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 no. I mean, I think, not signed you know, in blood. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you know my skill set has broadened as a result of coming in the house. So I've got you know I've, I've run I'm running a sales business. I'm mm. I'm running an operational um, operational element of the legal function, the wider governance function. Uh, so there's any number of things I think you know which are transferable into terms of. I could go back into private practice with advertising and marketing specialism that I still yeah, have. Yeah. I'm still practicing in terms of that day to day. But equally, actually, the operational side, mm. in terms of looking at actually, I think one of the, I don't think the model we've created in our panel firms is necessarily replicated elsewhere. I think there's a lot of disconnect between panel firms and their clients and managing, and, you know, that there isn't the ingrained relationships that there probably could be. I think mm. sometimes, I mean, I've done some work with the Muller Group based out of Churchill College, working with lawyers, getting them to understand the importance of rapport and the, you know, how to sell, that actually law isn't, it's a profession, absolutely, yeah. but we're still selling something, and, yeah. the, and the same, and the principles of sales still apply, yeah. and you can do that without in any way um, denigrating um, the profession that is being a solicitor. So I think, you know, there's, there's a huge amount of scope in that, that space and innovation, but not innovation in terms of just purely technology, about how we kind of deliver legal services in a far more efficient way. So mm. there's lots of thoughts going on. Well, Barry, <laughs> thank you. You're not on the market right at the moment, but a valuable commodity going forward. It's been great to chat to you. Thank you so much for welcoming us. And uh, well, best of luck with everything. It sounds like you've got plenty to, to keep you occupied. Yes, brilliant. Thanks. The Hearing. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Please like us or just follow and subscribe. We also want your feedback, so rate and review us or get in touch using the hashtag The Hearing Podcast. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.